0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.
1: This is Jen Ramage for KUSP. Today on the program, I'm speaking to Venda Levita, a novelist, co-editor of The Believer magazine, and teacher and founding board member for 826 Valencia, a writing center for young people. She's the author of the novel, And Now You Can Go, and Girls on the Verge, a journalistic study of female initiation rituals. In addition to her editing The Believer magazine, Venda Vida is also the editor of The Believer Book of Writers, Talking to Writers. Her newest novel is Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name, a tale of one woman's search for her true parentage. It is also a meditation on violence and the effects that it has on a family. Welcome to the program, Venda Vida.
0: Thank you. It's nice to be here. Tell us
1: about our protagonist, Clarissa Iverton.
0: Clarissa Iverton is 28 years old, and she is living in New York City with her fiancé, Pankaj. And her father, or the man who's raised her, is a man named Richard. And at the start of the book, he dies of a heart attack and... Upon burying him, she returns to his house to sort through his desk and his possessions, and she comes across her birth certificate. Clarissa has never seen her birth certificate before, and she's surprised by what she finds. On the line where she expects to see her father's name, Richard, um, she instead sees the name of her father as being Irovalcopa, a name that's very foreign to her and has many vowels. And (laughs) this um, this obviously comes as a shock, especially on the day that she just buried the man that has raised her. And she can't ask her mother about the identity of her father because her mother took off and abandoned the family when Clarissa was 14 years old. So eventually, um, she traces the, the name Iro Valkapa and discovers he's a Sami priest living in Lapland. And Lapland is the area of Scandinavia where Norway, Finland, and Sweden all come together above the Arctic Circle. And the Sami people are an indigenous population who inhabit Lapland. So this um, this revelation, and this discovery on her of her birth certificate ultimately leads her to to go there and try to find out the identity of her real father.
1: So now it's Clarissa's turn to disappear to Lapland and to the world of the Sammy, much as her mother did without a trace yes. 14 years prior.
0: <laughs> well, Clarissa um, abandons her fiancé, Pankaj, without telling him where she's going because she finds out that Pankaj has actually known um, that her father was not Richard. Pankaj and Clarissa were childhood sweethearts and reunited when they were in their 20s. And Clarissa's mother and Pankaj's mother were good friends when she was growing up. And so due to this confidence between their mothers, Pankaj has been aware of the fact that Richard was not her real father. And she views this as an ultimate betrayal, the fact that he was withholding this information from her. And obviously he was—he claims that he was doing it to protect her, but she views it as a betrayal and a, a and an evidence that he was kind of infantilizing her and not trusting her with information about her own life. Yeah, she writes, you know,
1: uh, one, um, that recently everything around me felt familiar yet amiss, uh, like the first time you ride in the back seat of your own car, and I thought that was so appropriate. Here's Richard, a man who was her father until his death, and now she finds out that he was playing a role, mm-hmm. even as he loved her. And then two, here's her fiancé, who's been her uh, childhood sweetheart, who's known her as long as she's known herself as a woman, who has known something else about her that she hasn't known. It's it's quite a betrayal in her eyes.
0: Right. Well, I was kind of playing around with different forms of betrayal. I think there are some more cut and dry betrayals, like the mother leaving the family is obviously just that's an obvious betrayal. But the, the Pankaj betrayal is, is much more subtle to me and, and in a sense much more interesting. And I've had more readers comment about that betrayal than any other. You know, They think, well, was he really? He was doing it because he cared about her and and things like that. But I think that ultimately she views it as a form of of, um, of lying.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting in this book, and, and as we get further into it, in a second you'll read a passage from her journey, um, and this seems to be a real journey uh, to not only to find her her father, but also to forgive her mother and to find herself. And this journey, like so many journeys in the book, um, start with either a betrayal or an act of violence. And it seems like you're playing a lot in this book, and even in your first, with the idea of violence and of rage, and how different people respond and react to that very human condition.
0: Mm -hmm. I set out originally to write a trilogy about violence and forgiveness. And the the reason I wanted to write a trilogy is as as I was working on the first novel, And Now You Can Go, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to get everything into that one book. And so I kind of let myself off the hook by saying, okay, this isn't your only book. You're going to write two more and finally maybe <laughs> you'll get it right. So um, it's kind of, and so that's been really freeing in a way, in a sense, because I start off knowing my themes and every book I want to take a you know different approach to violence and forgiveness and show different ways that people react and deal to those themes. Venda Vita, why does that fascinate you so much? I'm, I don't. No, I think because they're both so complex, I think because we live in a society in which we as a, as a country are going into other places and, and committing acts of violence and expecting people to forgive us and expecting ourselves to, for, you know, to forgive our country. I think it's, it's something that exists both on a personal level in everyday life and in families and between friends and also something that we, we live through as a country as well.
1: It's interesting. It sort of gets at this idea about what a writer's role is in society. You know, it's here you are exploring violence and its aftermath and also the restorative powers it has. Um, Maureen Corrigan, who is a literature professor and a book reviewer for Fresh Air, talks about, when you write fiction that, you know, consciously or not, what readers do each time you read the fiction is that we set off on a search for authenticity. It's like we're searching for answers that maybe are difficult to find in everyday life. So we're looking at someone else's life, identifying with something there, and then hopefully growing from it.
0: I think that's true. I also think that what's appealing to me about fiction, both writing it and in particular reading it, is that you can get into someone's life so much more quickly than you can into someone's life that you're just meeting on the street. You, know, you can walk down the street and meet your friend, but you might just talk about very superficial things. And I think that can be really frustrating, whereas when you're reading a book, you get to know someone very quickly and know intimate details about them, and that's what really appeals to me.
1: Yeah, and there's sometimes there are secrets that no one else knows. Right. So
0: know. <laughs> Clarissa is a perfect example of that. Why don't we hear a bit from Clarissa? Sure. Um, I'm going to read a small Pass a short passage, as I say. It's also small because the book is divided into very short sections that are numbered. Um, and this passage takes place when Clarissa is in Lapland, and she has just kind of had a concussion on this on this lake. She's been ill while she's been traveling, and she she kind of passes out on this lake, and she's discovered by the, the lake is frozen, obviously, because it's the dead of winter. Um, but she is discovered by these these two Sami. Um, people, this couple, who take her back to the lodge where she's been staying. And some phone calls are made, and it's decided that the, the Sami healer in town is going to take care of her. So she is picked up um, at the lodge by a man named Henrik, who's a young reindeer herder who she's met earlier in the day and actually thought was kind of, um, she was kind of attracted to him. So a little sexual friction as well. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to start here. I awoke to a knock at the door. Henrik. So we meet again, he said. Around his neck, he wore a black rope necklace with a silver pendant the shape of an animal tooth. I tried to speak, but grunted instead. I'm going to take you to my aunt, he said. Her name is Anna Christine. She wanted to help you yesterday when she heard you had lost someone. I nodded. I had lost someone. I brought my scooter, Henrik said. I don't have a car. Do you think you're strong enough to hold on? Yes, I lied. Henrik carried my suitcase outside and placed it in the storage compartment of a snowmobile. Nils, the lodge owner, wished me well. He looked relieved. It's not far, Henrik said. He sat down in front of me on the snowmobile, and I wrapped my arms around his puffy jacket. As we drove through the wind, my eyes bled water. Within minutes, we approached a small red house. It was surrounded by other houses, also red. Henrik helped me off the snowmobile. I followed him up three stairs. "'Inside, a rush of heat and an old woman sitting on a couch, knitting. "'This is Anna Christine,' Henrik said. "'She stood and moved toward me. "'If I hadn't seen her face, etched by age and cold, "'I would have thought she was a child. "'She was four and a half feet tall. "'I lost my legs. "'I fell against Henrik, spiraled to the floor. "'There were palms upon me, so many fingers. "'They led me into a small dark bedroom, and I toppled on a mattress.' Anna Christine said something to Henrik and he left the room. She peeled off my pants, long underwear and socks and dressed me in a flannel nightgown and knitted slippers. After 10 minutes or 20, Henrik returned to the room with a coffee cup. He propped me up and held the cup to my lips. I took a big sip and nearly choked. The Liquid was viscous, salty, neither cold nor hot. What is it, I asked. Reindeer blood, Henrik said. My aunt asked me to bring some to you. "'No,' I said, pushing away the cup. "'You're sick,' he said, "'and she's trying to make you good. "'The blood is good for chills.' "'He held the cup up to my mouth again "'and I made myself swallow. "'It tastes like electricity,' I whispered to no one in particular. "'Strands of hair stuck to my forehead. "'I was sweating. "'Anna Christine's weathered fingers "'smoothed the strands from my face "'and tucked them behind my ears. "'I grasped grasped her hand and held it tightly. "'Don't leave,' I said. I'm going to stop there.
1: So we meet Anna Christine, who, who plays much of a, a caregiver and healer to um, Clarissa. When we find her uh, at this... Um, at this point in the book, she is a, a woman who has not let anyone who loves or knows her know where she is or where she is going. Right. She has um, had a couple of of interesting local experiences already on this journey, um, bus after bus, looking for her father. And she has found more of herself, but also lost her bearings completely. Mm-hmm. Talk about who Anna Christine is. Um, She's a wonderful Sami healer, but it sounds like you did quite a lot of research on on the people of the Sami to do this book, and I think our listeners would love to know more about
0: them and who she represents. Sure. I was very intrigued by Lapland. Ever since I was a small child, I actually was very fascinated by the place. My mother is Swedish, but she's from the south of Sweden, but she had a cousin who had married a Sami priest. And so from a young age, I would hear stories about how at this wedding, the Sami priest had ridden into the ceremony on a white horse, and there had also been lots of yoiking at the wedding. Yoiking hmm. is, a, is a form of yodeling, but that's not quite doing it justice. It's a really beautiful song that everyone sings, and every Sami person has their own yoik. Um, I went there first when I was about 29. I went there in the summer, and I knew I wanted to set a book there. And I went there during the summer when it was sunny all the time. You know, the sun never set, and I was a little disappointed, to be honest. It wasn't quite what I thought it would be like. And I kept thinking, well, maybe I'll come back in the winter, because the people I met, told me how in the winter, people, you know, in the summer, they party all the time and barely sleep. But in the winter, um, it's a different, it's a different pace of life. And there's a lot of hibernation. Honestly, people sleep, you know, 10 or 11 hours at night because it's, it's dark out all the time. It's night at all the time. And they kind of save their energy up for the summer. So I went there um, in the winter, and I fell in love. It was this mystical place that really, really lived up to this idea I had in my head when I was younger. This kind of fairy tale like place. And I knew I wanted to set this book there. Um, I knew in particular that this was the book I wanted to set in Lapland because Clarissa's emotional state is really sparse and bereft and cold. And I thought that By putting her in a landscape that kind of mirrors what's going on with her internally, she'd almost feel more at home. Um, Mm -hmm. She would feel like the landscape was a true reflection of her emotional state and almost relax into it. Whereas I think if she had gone to the tropics, it would have been a disaster. (laughs) And she certainly wouldn't have have found anything out about her past. Um, So... I went there the second time, and I I really fell in love with Lapland and kind of got my bearings. And I went there for a third and final trip um, when I was about halfway through writing the book. And at this point in the book, I knew what Clarissa's backstory was. I knew the problems that she was facing, but I didn't know it was going to happen to her. I'm not one of those writers who maps out everything that's going to happen to a character, because I don't really believe in that for me personally. I like to be surprised by my character's actions, because... I feel like it's more fun for me, and also I feel that way I'm being more truthful to what the character is actually experiencing. I'm not projecting my own preconceived plot lines onto that character. So you might explore an emotion or an emotional state, but you want the character then to lead you to what they resolve. Exactly, exactly. And so when I went there for the third time, I kind of tried— Tried to trace Clarissa's path. I thought, well, where would she go? What would she do? Um, and that tra- by tracing that path, it led me to further and further north to- until I got to Katukeno, which is this very, um, very beautiful village that has a very large Sami population. And I was so, so. In awe of the of the village and the culture, because I thought originally that I would have to go to a museum in order to see traces of the Sami culture, and yet everything there was so vibrant. You know, women were walking in the grocery stores with their full Sami outfits on, which were these really beautiful. Um, in that part of the of Lapland, their red and blue outfits with lots of embroidery and and these red red hats that are rather are rather tall and they're kind of felt like. So, um, when I was there, I hadn't um, I hadn't intended on. Having a Sami healer enter Clarissa's life or enter the narrative <laughs> of the book, but I think that's the, the benefit of traveling. I, When I was there, I found myself sitting on the couch of a Sami healer, drinking reindeer blood and being served reindeer meat. And I thought, okay, the only way I'm going to do this, because I'm a really picky eater, the only way I'm going to do this is if I put <laughs> this in the book. And sure enough, I ended up basing a character on Anna Christine. She's very loosely based on, Anna um, Christine is very loosely based on the woman that I met, but... Um, she ended up just taking on a much bigger role in the book than I originally anticipated, and that was really thrilling for me.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting, too, you talk about travel and what, what boundaries it pushes against and, and changes minds. I mean, one um, line that Clarissa says sort of dismissively because she's always recreating who she is to everyone she meets in, in this journey is a line that was, travel is made for liars, or liars are made by travel, mm-hmm. and I thought
0: as our writers as well. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
1: Um, And uh, another interesting thing, I read uh, an interview where you talked a little bit about this experience you had with the Sami people and kind of looking at this world that many of us don't know and are unfamiliar with. Um, Is it really true that that certain Sami people can listen on the ground and can tell if a reindeer herd is coming for but, as, as many as 50 miles away. Yes,
0: in fact, um, when I went there during this the summer, that's when I first came across a reindeer herder who did that. Um, he was taking me around and was really trying to make me see this herd of reindeer. In um, the summer, they're much more much more sparse because they go away, they hibernate as well. But during the summer, um, but they but he put his ear to the ground and. and you know, got out, of the, got out of the car, put his ear to the ground and said, oh, let's keep going that way. And we drove closer and closer until we found them simply by by him listening with his ear.
1: There's something remarkable about that. I think it speaks to the people who Clarissa meets and, and their sensibility of how they live in the world that surrounds them. And, and as we read further in Clarissa's journey, we see that she too begins to appreciate the landscape and, and identify with it more. And, and Find it to be forgiving in a way that perhaps New York City and her other life was not. Right,
0: which is interesting. Um, I think also I had some fun with the travel because there are some amazing places there. Not only are the people amazing, the Sami people um, and the culture I think is really a beautiful culture, and the values are really are really important. Um, or like important to me. I think that they place place values on important things. Um, I also was just intrigued by some of the things I came across, like there are a couple of ice hotels there, you know, hotels that are made entirely out of ice and snow, and they're, they're really beautiful. Um, but because I was researching the book, and I thought, well, Clarissa's going to end up staying at this ice hotel, so I have to do that too. So that was that was really, really fun for me.
1: So talk about, too, in the book, uh, Clarissa has to learn, and and clearly you did too, uh, Venda La Vida, the idea that you don't layer too much and you have to make sure you don't sweat too much because then you'll be cold. Oh, when you're sleeping in the ice bed? Yeah, there are all of these really particular details that just float by in the book because it's, you know, it's a a sparsely laid book and it's well-crafted and they pass by as if commonplace. And yet you realize, boy, that's that's quite an undertaking.
0: Well, when you sleep at the ice hotel, you're sleeping on... A bed made of ice. I mean, everything's made of ice. The glasses in the bar are made of ice. It's like a James ice. Bond film. Yeah, <laughs> it totally is. So it, um, so the beds are made of ice, and they have reindeer skin over them, and you're given a sleeping bag when you check in, but you're also instructed on how to dress for bed. You can wear one layer of long underwear, so a top and a bottom, but you can't wear anything else. And there's actually, when I was there, there's a woman checking before you went to bed to make sure you weren't overdressed. Um, what you do then is you take the long underwear and you wrap a white. A cotton sheet around you, and then you slip into the sleeping bag. The reason that you can't be overdressed is that they're afraid you're going to sweat in your sleep, and then you'll, you know, obviously be moisture, and then you'll freeze. So you have to make sure not to, not to sweat in the sleeping bag.
1: It's such a precarious state, and I think what's it makes sense why you would, one, be fascinated with the area, but then, two, have Clarissa journey to the area and have her be the person who discovers all of this. She's in such a precarious place emotionally and physically through much of the narrative. Um, she's someone who seems to be trying to leave her victimhood behind mm-hmm. um, and become a survivor and that's a very complicated thing to do. It must have been complicated to write an ending for as well.
0: It was complicated to write an ending for. Um, I I didn't intend, I don't want to give anything away no. about, you know, about the ending. I know that you don't either. But I, I really struggle with the ending but I ultimately wrote the ending that I thought was most true to who this character was. I also um, wrote an ending that isn't necessarily prescriptive. I'm not saying to people, it's a novel. So I'm not saying to people, hey, you should go do this or hey, this is what I would do if I were in the similar situation. I'm actually um, trying to put across an alternative that I believe this one character, Clarissa, follows um, and and seeks as her solution to her to her dilemma of identity. I need to rephrase that. Sorry. I just No, it, <laughs> you know,
1: I think there is something to it. I mean, I think she is somebody who for her to continue on as she was is not being truthful to who she is and who she's become. Mm-hmm. So she has to to decide, well, who is she now? What does that mean? And without giving anything away about what she chooses or what she doesn't choose, she is the, the colorist at the end of the novel, just as she was at the beginning, but she's learned an awful lot about herself that maybe was always there. She just didn't see.
0: Right, and I also think that the novel ends with, a choice that I don't know if I would make, and I'm not mm-hmm. saying that other people should make. I'm not writing this to be morally prescriptive. I'm writing this ending to, to raise a question. I'd much rather read a book, and I'd much rather write a book um, that raises questions and leaves the reader wondering, hmm, would I do that? Was that the right choice? What does it mean that she did that? Rather than tying up the whole ending with you know, a pretty bow and letting... People believe, oh yeah, I would have done the same thing. The end. Goodbye. Right. I, you know, I read that book. I can forget about it now. So I was very cautious of the fact, very conscientious of the fact that mm-hmm. the ending wouldn't necessarily be an ending that everyone would say, "Oh, go Clarissa, right on, great choice." <laughs> <laughs> I knew that wasn't be- going to be the case. But I also I was much more um, much more interested in her being a true character than a completely likable one.
1: I think there's something to that. I think. Um you know it goes back to that authenticity that we're all seeking and and in a way it talks about the modern novel as well. I mean you give reference to uh, Samuel Richardson's book Clarissa, and for those of you who need to look it up, you should look up when this book was written and why it was written because it definitely um, has a lot of bearing on the on the our main character, Clarissa Iverton, as well.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up. Not a lot of people have, have noticed that, but that was a deliberate choice to have it in there. And the reason she's named Clarissa is because her mother names her after the Clarissa of Samuel Richardson's novel, which is it's kind of an evil thing to do when, when you realize what happens to Clarissa in the Richardson novel. Um, but then I think Virginia Woolf was paying tribute to that, to Richardson's Clarissa in Mrs. Dalloway by naming Mrs. Dalloway Clarissa Dalloway. And so I thought when I was trying to name this character, I thought I would continue in that tradition as well. I
1: think it also speaks to mind the idea that writers um, reflect life, and life is not always clean and pretty, and it isn't without strife and violence. Um, and interestingly, another thing that really calls to mind with Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name is that you know, beauty can come from ugliness, but it is a difficult thing to, to bear that burden. And Clarissa sort of struggles with that um, in her life. And for those of you who need to read it, you need to go forward. And then you also need to read Clarissa by <laughs> Samuel Richardson, because we're, we're not re- going to give away more. But read <laughs> the abridged version. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Epistolary novels are great, but put <laughs> in their proper space and time. Yeah. <laughs> this, speaking also of the idea that you wanted to leave a provocative ending and not be neat and tidy, um, seems to call to mind what you're trying to do in some ways at 826 Valencia and what writers in San Francisco in kind of creating a community have done. It's writers reinventing, in my mind, with a believer and, and other things, um, the way we interact with the written word and, and the way that it now becomes hip and full of content and complicated again. It seems that in other parts of the country we've, we've stepped away from engaging young people in the written word and, and you guys seem to be doing quite the opposite and
0: doing whatever it takes to engage and, and, and to inspire, whether it's pirates or not. <laughs> um, you're referring to the fact that we have a pirate store um, at the entrance to the, to the writing center. And that came about um, kind of surreptitiously because we wanted to um, to use the space to provide a non- to start a nonprofit writing lab, but the space was zoned for retail. So 20% of the, of the space, um, according to the real estate, Agent had to be um, had to be a store, and we uh-huh. thought, okay, well, what what can we sell? Maybe we'll sell something like taxidermy supplies because that's what the <laughs> store in Brooklyn used to sell, the mm-hmm. McSweeney store. Um, but out of all the places in San Francisco that we had chosen, the store next door, Paxton Gate, sells taxidermy supplies and does a really amazing job. They have really beautiful taxidermy collections. So we thought, well, we don't want to look like we're trying to put them out of business because right. you know, this is just a zoning law we're trying to get around here. So we thought that the inside of the of the writing center looked like a ship in a lot of ways. So we thought, oh, pirate supplies. We'll sell pirate supplies and we'll just get that zoning matter out of the way and whatever, it'll be, it'll be fine. Um, what we didn't realize at the time is that A, the pirate store would be kind of a gateway to the community. People would walk and be like, what the heck is going on? And, and that would actually um, entice them to learn more about the center. They'd bring in their kids or else they would themselves become volunteers and work with the, st- with the students at the center. So that was one benefit. And the other benefit we didn't foresee is that people really seem to like pirate supplies. <laughs> All the proceeds from the store benefit the writing lab. And so that's really great that, um, that it, it contributes enormously to the finances of the writing lab, which, of course, is nonprofit. Um, the reason we wanted to start a writing lab for young people was it seems like writers have a lot of free time. You know? <laughs> They have a lot of free time, and yet it's not enough free time to get a job. At a school, certainly, you know, teaching, writing. Um, that I, I don't think anyone who is a full-time writer could also keep up with the demands of the public school system, you know, places on their teachers these days. So we thought, well, what if we tried to help support the public school system, help, try to help support these teachers who are w- working with such big class sizes yeah. and unprecedented class sizes, and brought in people who had extra time on their hands, whether they're writers or not. You know, they don't have to be writers. And these writers and and. And other adults can work one-on-one with the students to provide them with writing help that their teachers might not have the opportunity or the chance to to, um, provide simply because of the class sizes.
1: It seems like you're also um, kind of reinventing the wheel in terms of how you how you um, treat book reviews and essays on the written word in The Believer magazine, much as you did um, in Valencia and how um, teachers and kids interact with the written word. Can you talk a little bit about that work there? I mean, it's a big undertaking, you being co-editor of The Believer, and it's been going for a number of years
0: now. Right. Um, We started The Believer in March of 2003. And when I say we, I mean um, myself, Heidi Julevitz, and Ed Park. Heidi Julevitz is also a novelist, and Ed Park is also a writer. And the three of us went to Columbia together in the MFA program in the mid-'90s. We were there. And once we got out of school— we, you know, we had kind of that, <laughs> that <laughs> breakdown that everyone has. We thought, oh, wow, this is the real world? Well, no one's talking about books all the time, and no one's giving us book recommendations. And and we kept on a conversation amongst ourselves, but at a certain point we thought, okay, this is getting boring. Let's open this up to other people. And so we thought that by starting a magazine, we could, we could continue that conversation and also learn from some of our readers and our writers. So the Believer was started in 2003, and it's been going strong ever since. Um, We are really thankful to our, we have a small readership, you know, an honest readership about 15,000 people, but we feel very thankful and loyal to them because they're very loyal to us and they allow us to exist. what we do at The Believer that's different from other magazines is that we, we don't devote space to trashing books. And a lot of people say, <laughs> oh, that means you're just, you're so nice. And it's not about being nice. It's actually about using our, our pages wisely. Um, we think, well, if there are a number of other publications that are going to trash this big book, why should we do it too um, on our acid-free paper? We should <laughs> maybe use that same space to bring attention to a book by a first-time novelist or a book that's published by a small press that people haven't heard of and should hear about. Um, I should also mention that the book reviews we run aren't always about books that have just come out or books right. that are just appearing in your bookstore for the first time. We also like to devote a lot of space to books you never heard of that came out maybe 50 years ago yeah. and that we've never heard of, but we have a writer who comes to us and says, I love this guy's work. You have to check it out um and I, after you check it out i'd love to write a piece about him and so that's been really fun as well to learn about these books that and writers who have long since gone their way and and yet their books are still around it's about advocacy mm-hmm. and love
1: it's in a, in many ways it's what independent bookstores do as well with recommending to readers and, right. and having staff say this is something i love check it out mm-hmm. It's an interesting way. I'm sure that it, you know, it's interesting looking at San Francisco as a literary town versus New York as a literary town. There's a lot of um, interesting push and pull that has happened since uh, The Believer and McSweeney's and other things have really started and come, come into fruition. What's nice to see is that everybody's really talking about books again, and I think you should feel good about the work that you've done, la Levita, in making that
0: happen. Oh, thank you. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> So you said
1: that, uh, near the beginning that this was w- one of three. This was the second edition. Have you talked about um, violence and its effects enough, or are you looking to do a bookend I'm now?
0: still – I'm working right now on the third book in the in the trilogy that I uh-huh. set out to write. And in this book, the, the protagonist is older. She's a woman in her 50s whose um, daughter has passed away, and she's trying to come to terms with that. Um, and I won't give away too much more about it, namely because I don't know that much more about it. <laughs> so – <laughs> That's where I'm at right now.
1: But again, struggling with those big questions and allowing us to struggle with them as well, not providing the simple solutions. Right. Vendela Vida, author of Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.
0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.